So this season, we've been looking at Advent, and Advent is a season of anticipation. Right? That's kind of the whole idea, that we're anticipating the appearing, the arrival of our Lord, and that's why we call it Advent. And right now, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, and that's because we're celebrating Jesus' first coming. It shouldn't be a surprise to us in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, that we're also anticipating, eagerly anticipating, Jesus' second coming. And that's why we say, come Lord Jesus. And, you know, we're familiar with the words from Scripture, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But Advent also celebrates that we invite Jesus to come to us today. We invite him to come into our hearts. We invite him to come into our homes. We invite him to come into our gatherings, both with family and with friends, because when Jesus appears, this is the whole theme of Advent, when Jesus appears, God's peace is found. When Jesus appears, when he is present, God's peace is found. In this Advent, we're looking at the songs of Christmas. And, you know, sometimes maybe we're getting confused with, you know, are these actual songs that we sing at Christmas? But the truth is, is that these are songs within the scriptures. So they're arranged as a song or a hymn or a poem would be. And only the Gospel of Luke records songs like this for us. And so he is trying to communicate something, and this is his big communication, which he does throughout his gospel story, that God has a plan to bring peace to the world through his son. And so he, he organizes it in song form, as some uh, Old Testament writers did as well, but he organizes it in song form to summarize that story, that God has a plan to bring peace to the world through his son. Now, I want to tell you about one of the first times I experienced God's peace. I was in York, England, and in York, England, there's a park nestled right up against this ancient Gothic church known as the York Minster. I'm going to put up a picture here on the screen for you to see. And I would come into the park in the quietness of the early morning during my time at York Bible College, and it was in these sacred moments here in the benches throughout Dean's Park right next to the York Minster that I went line by line through my sin, confessing in detail, out loud, and then received the Lord's forgiveness. Now, this might not necessarily convey to you the idea of peace, but let me be clear, you know, at that time, I didn't necessarily think that way either, but these deep works of the heart, they worked in me a whole person peace that changed everything. The forgiveness I received, it wasn't simplistic. It was a sole application of the washing of regeneration over my entire life. It brought a courage and a desire to go out and to make things right with others, to somehow repay or to reconcile those whom I had sinned against. And as a result of that experience, which was spread out over some time during my semester, as a result of that experience, the little park 
outside the York Minster, which is so beautiful in that picture, it will forever be etched into my mind as a place of God's peace. Advent is a perfect season to recall God's peace. Christmas time should be filled with God's peace. But this particular Christmas, this one that we're about to celebrate, it's a peculiar one, isn't it? It's a peculiar Christmas. The weirdness of the global pandemic still lingers. It's still surging in places. But the urge for normalcy, the urge for connection, for simpler times, for less division, it's pulling at us with a kind of gravity, the longing for the peace of the world, the longing for peace in our nation, I find that it's directly connected to my own deep longing for peace within. The worldwide chaos and friction has come into our very homes. This come into our own hearts. I hear stories almost weekly of parents and children who are divided. Spouses, longtime friends, spiritual confidants, all divided in this peculiar Christmas. All divided against one another. And yet, the peace that Christ brings at any and all of his appearance, the peace that Christ brings, it works a deep work of both personal peace, it is working within us, and also it overflows to bring a worldwide peace. The peace that Jesus brings is both a deep personal work of forgiveness, kind of like what I experienced at the York Minster Park, Forgiveness between a person and God and also the peace that Christ brings begins a deep work in people throughout the world to bring and to build a kingdom of peace. Now, the story that we're looking at today, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they are no strangers to chaos and friction, as we'll see. They experienced it personally and they experienced it worldwide. And it's interesting because even in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see that the personal longing for God's peace and the worldwide longing for God's peace are intertwined. And it's at that very moment of both personal longing and worldwide longing that Jesus arrives and brings God's peace. I think it's amazing how similar the birth stories of John and Jesus are. And if you haven't recently read in Luke 1 the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are John's parents, they're uh, from the tribe of Levi, Zechariah, John's father, works in the temple. If you haven't read their story in Luke chapter 1, or if you haven't read the story of Mary, Jesus' young mother, I'd encourage you to do so. This is the season to take a moment, take it with your family, your spouse, your friends, read over the stories. But it's amazing how similar these two stories are. For example, both are announced 
by the angel Gabriel. Now, we might be familiar with this angel. He's from Daniel chapter 8 and 9. You could turn there in your Bibles and read that story. We're not going to do that now. But this angel in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, his return to the story here in Luke chapter 1 symbolizes the renewal of God's involvement among his people. In other words, the angel is back. God is back. And he appears to both, Zechariah and Mary. Both stories tell of miraculous birth. I mean, on the one hand, you have the story of John's birth in a post-menopausal woman. We might not think of that. That's a miracle. You know, science can't do that, right? Like, it's a, all the ladies are nodding, and all the guys are like, I, I, I was confused by this. It's a miracle. But on the other hand, we have this, the miraculous birth of the virgin, which is obviously another miracle. Both stories, or excuse me, both children are foretold to be great. Both are given names by the angel Gabriel. And both Mary and Zechariah are told not to be afraid. Yet, there is also a difference in the two stories. On the one hand, Mary is celebrated for her faithful response, while on the other hand, Zechariah is chastened for his lack of trust. Let's look at these two stories briefly now, and let's compare them. First, let's look at the story of Mary. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 1, verses 28. We'll read through to verse 35. There it says that the angel went to Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, what kind of greeting might this be? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Look at verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the story of Mary, you have this response of how can this be? And the angel explains. But then we compare that with the story of John the Baptist and his father, Zechariah. Look back to verse 5, and we'll see his story. Verse 5 says, In the time of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So you contrast these two stories. On the one hand, Mary's how will this be receives an explanation versus Zachariah's how can I be sure of this, receives a rebuke. Now, scholar Paul Borgman, he says that Mary trustingly asks for an explanation, while Zechariah, he anxiously asks the angel to prove it. Prove it to me. And, I mean, it's really fascinating to read Gabriel's answer to Zechariah, isn't it? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Yeah, that's quite an answer. However, I don't want us to condemn Zachariah here. This isn't meant to be a simple comparison between Mary's response and Zachariah's response. The story of Zachariah and Elizabeth goes deeper than that. And this is what sort of drew me in to this story. It goes deeper than just a simplistic response. Look back again at verse 13. Look what the angel says to him. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. I was just struck by this simple affirmation. Your prayer has been heard. Just thinking through just how much confidence, how much Uh, you know, joy that would bring your prayer has been heard. But even as I was studying and reading this story and, you know, being encouraged myself, my mind immediately went to the question of, well, what prayer was heard? Now, backstory to this is interesting. Zechariah and his priestly division would uh, go into the temple two times a year for one-week work periods at a time. And today, Zechariah is experiencing something that would be once in a lifetime. Zechariah is in the holy place. 
This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. And he's serving before the Lord either at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., depending on if you're an early riser or a late riser. Connect, you know, yourself to one of those times, right? At 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., Zechariah is in the holy place. He's right in front of the veil before the Holy of Holies where Yahweh dwelled on earth. That's exactly where Zechariah is. And during this time, he's lighting incense. He's right there, lighting the incense. And we're told that during the lighting of incense, Zechariah would offer prayers for the nation. He would be lifting up the nation in its oppression and its difficulty to follow God, and that all the people were gathered outside around the temple joining in these prayers. However, as we just read, we also know that Zechariah and Elizabeth are old and barren. And so both the needs of the nation and the weariness of his own life must have weighed on Zechariah. So again, I sort of return to this question, what prayer was answered? Now, isn't it true that prayers can be so complex? Jesus teaches us to pray to God who is alert and attentive to our words, to make sure that our words reflect real, deep needs, and they're not mere babblings. Jesus teaches us to pray for the things of God and to ask God to be attentive to our own deep needs of provision. Jesus says, pray on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven to earth and lift the needs of earth to heaven. Most likely, in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Zechariah is praying for both the needs of the nation, a nation that was oppressed, It was occupied by foreigners, the Roman government, and they were struggling to follow God. Zechariah was praying for the needs of the nation and praying for his own deep personal issues. It says later in verse 25 that both he and his wife faced shame and disgrace from being old and barren. Notice again what the angel says Zechariah in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. I mean, the angel knows. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Those deep personal longings, those things that often aren't even able to be expressed into words, the angel, the Lord God hears, he will be a joy and delight to you. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 16. Now, it's interesting that close on the heels of Gabriel's words of affirmation, God hears your prayers, both personal prayers and worldwide prayers, 
Close on those heel, the heel of those words comes Zachariah's anxiousness. Prove it. But as the story progresses, we see that, you know, it's, you know, Zechariah learns to trust and obey the Lord's words. Now, I like to kind of put myself in the place of the people in the story sometimes. And it must have been interesting to be deaf and mute for just nine months. I mean, it just must have been an interesting experience. Yet, contrast that with the information that Zechariah learned. Zechariah learned from the angel that this nine months that he's going through right now, this nine months, you know more than you've ever known that the Lord is and will be faithful. This nine months, you know that God sees both your personal longings and your worldwide longings. He knows that you, that, uh, excuse me, you know that he knows the needs of your neighbor. You know that he knows the needs of your city. The Lord even knows the longings of the world. Now, after his son was born, it says in verses 59 through 64, <clears throat> excuse me, read that with me again, that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And they made signs to his father, again, because he's deaf, to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. It makes sense, I think, in this story that Zachariah's first words were praise. After nine months of not being able to speak, the first thing he uttered, after nine months of thinking about God's faithfulness, both to him and his wife, wife, both to the nation and even the world, after nine months of thinking on those things, the first thing he utters is praise. And it's not a surprise to us in this story. The Holy Spirit has been moving all along. Despite the barrenness of Elizabeth, Despite the virginity of Mary, you know, God overcame those circumstances and brought about a miraculous birth. The Holy Spirit even inspired John in the womb of his mother. I mean, that's wild stuff. And now the Holy Spirit inspires Zechariah to sing a psalm of praise. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord. I mean, this is why this song is called the Benedictus. You might have heard that growing up in church. The Benedictus, that's the first word here, praised, blessed be the Lord. Yet notice what exactly Zechariah gives God praise for. Let's look at these praises beginning again in verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has come to his people. 
He's visited. He is concerned, and he is going to assist them. Verse 69, because he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, we might not necessarily connect with this language here, but like animals, right? Think of an animal with horns. An animal has horns, and he is able to protect himself and those in his little flock or whatever. He's able to protect them. And the, you know, Zechariah's words here are saying, like that, same image, God is able to powerfully protect. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Notice where? In the house of his servant David. I mean, Zechariah isn't referring to his son here. I mean, he is a proud papa, as we'll see in a minute. But he doesn't miss us. He's not referring to his son. He's not even referring to his own priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. He's looking at other tribe, another tribe, the tribe of Judah, and he's looking to his Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And he's seen that God has faithfully fulfilled his promised covenant to Abraham all of God's people throughout history. That God has given salvation and even rescue from, quote, our enemies. Twice he refers in this song to our enemies. Now, I don't think many of us would say, at least I wouldn't necessarily say, that we have, quote, enemies. Yet, All of us experience opposition, which is the most elementary thing the Bible is referring to when it speaks of enemies. Now, perhaps it's easier nowadays with all of the division all around us. Opposition seems to be the air that we breathe. You can't breathe without someone opposing you. But the Bible is familiar with, the, with environments of opposition. Think of this. One-third of the Psalms refer to an enemy in one way or another. In the New Testament, the enemy usually refers to the evil one who opposes God's people. He's the accuser called Satan. In this song, it likely refers to Satan's grip on humanity. So what Zechariah is singing about is that God is freeing humanity from evil's presence and power. Praise the Lord that he has brought this freedom. But if Zechariah is referring to human enemies, then let Jesus' words to love your enemy in the Sermon on the Mount clarify that the kingdom God is building resolves all conflict. Zechariah's words are the worldwide longing for God's peace. Everyone on earth longs for it. These words are the answer to the psalmist's prayer who prays, How long, O Lord, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Zechariah is exclaiming that the Lord has heard that worldwide prayer. And as Zechariah's song continues, we see that God has also heard 
uh, Zachariah's personal prayer. And notice how he turns his words to his newborn son now. Look at verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Zacharias prays of God here, and let's be clear, even though his eyes are directed at his newborn son, he is praising God. But his praise of God here has to be complex, doesn't it? I mean, think of this. He's saying to his son, my child, when just a few months earlier, neither he nor his wife were even thinking about children. They were barren, they were childless, and they were both very old. Their life up till that point was shrouded in disgrace. And now, think of the emotion when he directs his eyes at his son and says, you, my child. You can feel the heartfelt emotion in the praise of God here. This isn't the arrogance of a needy parent, a parent, a proud papa who's blind, but the thoughtful thankfulness of a devout follower of the Lord. I mean, truly, it, it draws your attention to this word combination that he utters that it, it's just all because of God's tender mercy. And this, this two-word word combination here, it emphasizes God's mercy. Our Lord is, a merc- is mercifully merciful. And this is a theme that's, you know, mercy has been referenced of the Lord several times in this chapter. And Zechariah almost exclaims it here, he is mercifully merciful, or as Eugene Peterson translates it, filled with heartfelt mercies. God saw the pain and the longing of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He cares for those. Those things don't go unnoticed. And God mercifully provided. The deepest longing of their heart was met with the deep provision of God's peace. How else can one respond than in heartfelt praise at the Lord's heartfelt mercy? And yet, as Zechariah says in verse 77, These mercies are especially seen in the forgiveness of sins. And if I can, I'd like to end here on a bit of a personal personal note. Forgiveness of sins is such an important theme. And yet, it's one that I find is so quickly forgotten. You know, people like to say things like, To forgive is to forget. But not only do I not find that true, I actually find rather that forgiveness itself is often forgotten. 
What I mean is that the only one who wants to forget sin is the one asking for forgiveness. People I have sinned against don't often forget. And even I wish I could forget. I wish they would forget. But I believe it's because of God's tender mercies that I cannot. What I received and what we receive when we ask for forgiveness is not forgetfulness, crossing our fingers, hoping someone won't remember what I've done. What I receive instead is pardon, a release from sin, and in its place, God's peace. 20 years ago, as I mentioned, at the York Minster, I experienced God's peace. It was one of the first times in my life, which is now, by God's grace, filled with stories of God's peace. It was one of the first times in my life that I experienced God's peace. It was my own, if you will, your prayer has been heard moment. But what came out of that experience of God's peace was a growing courage to go and to make it right with others. And early on as I was following the Lord, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know where that was necessarily coming from. All I knew is the very first thing I had to do was to go and say sorry to a lot of people. I wanted to go and make it right. I wasn't afraid. For whatever reason, there's a courage there. I wasn't afraid no matter how embarrassed or ashamed I was and still am in certain senses. So as a young Christian, I mentally logged all of the people that I needed to connect with, some of whom I had hurt very deeply, some even in my own family, and I started to apologize one by one. Now, later, much later, I found out that there's theological language for all of this. People refer to it as reconciliation and restitution. But early on, all I had and all I knew was that the Holy Spirit was telling me that I was wrong and I needed to say that I was sorry. Advent, this season that we're in right now, is a perfect time to recall the times that we've experienced God's peace in our life. And if you haven't experienced God's peace, it's a perfect time to experience God's peace. And it's a perfect time to practice God's peace. I'm going to have the band come out now, and you know, as we wrap things up here, I'm going to invite us to reflect on times of God's peace. You see, the primary characteristic of the Christian is that they have experienced God's peace. That's the story of Luke. God is bringing his peace. God is building a kingdom of peace. This isn't the shallow peace that we might imagine. This is whole person, whole nation, whole world flourishing. And in so experiencing God's peace, the Christian who knows peace, they become a peacemaker. 
Christians, as we know the story, both proclaim peace on earth, goodwill towards all people, but they also bring peace. So a few questions for reflection. Do you need to receive God's forgiveness today? I encourage you, let my story be an encouragement to you. Do not be afraid of confession. That deep heart work will bring about the greatest peace a person can experience. Maybe there are people that you need to apologize to. I mean, in the world that we live in today, I feel like it's ripe for us to practice apologizing. Do not be afraid. God has forgiven you, and you can have the courage to apologize. Even make restitution. And if God allows, even reconcile. I don't care right now. Open your phone and text somebody that you're sorry. That would be the most godly thing to do, even though it's weird to, you know, do that in church. Do it. Maybe... You need to forgive your enemies, those who oppose you. How we respond to those who oppose you is the proof of our experience of God's peace. Let me read a quote from Ronald Rollheiser to you and just culminates this so clearly. He says, where Jesus stretches us beyond our natural instincts and beyond all self-delusion is in his command to love our enemies, to be warm to those who are cold to us, to be kind to those who are cruel to us, to do good to those who hate us, to forgive those who hurt us, to forgive those who won't forgive us, and to ultimately love and forgive those who are trying to kill us. That command, love and forgive your enemies, eat more than any credal formula or other moral issue is the litmus test for Christian discipleship. We can ardently believe in and defend every item in the Bible and fight passionately for justice in all its dimensions, but the real test of whether or not we are followers of Jesus is the capacity or non-capacity to forgive an enemy, to remain warm and loving towards someone who is not warm and loving to us. We shouldn't delude ourselves on this. It is easy to rationalize this away, and if we do, no doubt, there will be more than enough false friends around us who will furnish us with both theological and psychological arguments that will justify us in not loving our enemies. But the gospel is uncompromising. We are loving or non-loving, not on the basis of how we respond to those who love us, but on the basis of how we respond to those who hate us and are cold, hostile, and murderous toward us. That's the hard, non-negotiable truth underlying Jesus' command to love. And when we are honest, we have to admit that we are still a long ways from measuring up. As we go from here and reflect on these things, we might not be, it might not be easy for us to know, oh, I need forgiveness, oh, I need to apologize. Our prayers might be complex. But even if your prayer is complex, even if you close your eyes, 
and you are overwhelmed by both the personal and the worldwide longings that you are facing, even if you cannot put your prayer into words, speak what you can. And just like Zachariah and Elizabeth, God in his tender mercies will appear and will bring his peace. As we close the service now, as the band plays, I'd invite us all to bow our heads and to close our eyes. I want you to spend some time now praying through these things up here on the screen or just being in the presence of our Lord and experiencing his peace.